Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. I recently read a story from a children's book written by Alicia Zanoni. The book is called I Like You, Samantha Sarah Marie. Um, it's a, a, a children's story about a little girl adopted in a family, the little girl's name, Samantha Sarah Marie, and uh, she is now a part of the Zanoni or the Z's household. And um, we're told that she was little as a fiddle when she came to live in the Z's house. As she entered this new home, she wondered if she would like these people. She'd lived with another family before and didn't like them so much. But even more than that, she wondered if they would like her. And uh, the author describes the mishaps and misdeeds in this family from wild dances that resulted in broken, with broken vases to endless loud singing in the car to coloring on the walls with crayons. A lot of this uh, initiated by this new little force of energy in their household. In each case, Mrs. Z responded with care and grace, never a pushover, but also very warm and never flinching from fundamental acceptance and embrace. One night, this uh, mom of this adopted little girl was cuddling with her, and she told Samantha Marie, Sarah Marie, just how grateful she was to have her in the family. Based on previous experience, this boundary-bursting, spunky little girl wondered aloud if it was true that she was glad to have her in the family, even when she got in trouble. Well, sighed Mrs. E, I don't like it when you break my things or color on my walls, and it makes me very sad when you disobey and yell and I have to discipline you. But that doesn't change the fact that you are so very special to our family. There is no other girl like you who has your spunk or your smile or your imagination or your laugh. I like that a lot. This little adopted girl asked her new mom if she liked her even when she misbehaved. I think all of us even from a very young age, know that it's possible to love someone, even unconditionally love, loving someone, but not necessarily or always like them. It's possible to love someone, even unconditionally, but not to necessarily like them. Love is an outlandishly beautiful reality, but if we're not careful, it can be rooted in obligation and duty. We're actually commanded to love. Like, however, though an aspect of love is more about pleasure, like is about delight. We all need to know that people in our lives not only love us, but also like us. And like us, even in our less than perfect human condition. Which leads me to this. We all surely know God loves us, each and every one of us. But I wonder if we also know, are deeply aware that God likes us, that he likes each and every one of us in all of our uniqueness and even in our less than perfect humanity, even when we misbehave. There's every reason 
from Scripture to believe that he not only loves you, but that as part of his love, he likes you. His relationship with Israel throughout history is a demonstration of this. Even though the children of Israel often misbehaved and had to be corrected, he loved her and he liked her and he let her know that he liked her. The prophet Zephaniah captures it beautifully when uh, the prophet says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Cheer up, Zion, don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness, With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. He likes you so much that not only does he keep his covenant of love, but also he delights in you with gladness. He dances over you with singing, one translation says. The word dance or rejoice there in the original Hebrew actually means to whirl around under the influence of violent emotion. He likes you so much he is overwhelmed with his delight and he dances over you with rejoicing. In every presidential contest election cycle there's a poll that's that's done we we see it every time the polling question is which of these two candidates would you like to have a beer with it's a likability question which of these two candidates would you like to have a beer with my question to you is do you think that god would like to have a meal with you i think that the answer should be yes but i think for a lot of us we would question our likability in the eyes of God. Do you think that God would like to have a meal with you? I think the answer should be yes. See, Jesus showed us what God is like. And Jesus was constantly having meals with sinners. I submit that part of the reason he had meals with sinners was because he liked them. He didn't like them because they were sinners, but he liked them even though they were sinners. He liked hanging out with sinners. Here in a few minutes, I'm going to focus on how he saves sinners from sins and and sin and helps them, us, become the best version of themselves. But first, I want to tell you that he likes people even when they misbehave. He doesn't like sin. In fact, he hates sin because it keeps people from fully living the life he dreams for them. But he loves sinners. In fact, I think we could say he likes sinners. I mean like in the way that if a sinner would say, would you come and have brunch with me after service today? He would say, yes, I'd love to because I really, really like you. He likes you. You who forgot to return an email this week that you promised to someone that you needed to communicate with. You who got angry on your way to service this morning because somebody cut you off and who showed that person that you, in fact, were angry at them. You who watched Netflix too long last night and showed up late to serve on the First Impressions team this morning. Now, I don't like you, but he still (laughs) likes you. You who are so addicted to Facebook that you've already looked at Facebook during this sermon, yay, even during the first part of this so far kind of boring message, but it will get interesting. He likes you. He likes you 
who's struggling with lust. He likes you who disappointed someone you loved this week. He likes you who sinned. You. God likes imperfect people like you. Likes. That doesn't just mean, that doesn't mean that the fallen parts of our humanity are good. It doesn't mean that doing stupid things are good. It certainly doesn't mean that doing sinful things are good. It just means that God, that God likes you nevertheless. And I think that Jesus would really like to have brunch with you because he likes you. See, through Jesus, we can become the best version of ourselves. And I want to dig into that for a little bit today. Through Jesus, we can become the best version of ourselves, but we are still us, and he likes us. Over the last few weeks, we've been teaching about how to cultivate paradise, how to cultivate life as God meant it to be. And one of the things that I taught early on was how that our identity should be found in Christ and how that when we cultivate our spiritual lives, we grow to become more like Jesus. And I've talked about how when we cultivate our spiritual lives, we close the gap between our old fallen selves and become more and more like the person God says we are now through Jesus Christ. However, does this mean that we're no longer ourselves? Does this mean that God doesn't like us? If the whole goal is to grow to become more like Jesus, does that mean God only likes Jesus, but he really doesn't like us all that much? So for instance, I've talked at length about the Apostle Paul's writings to the Colossians when he said, you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. He's talking about the fact that when we believe the good news about Jesus, that we are considered to have entered into what he did through the gospel, particularly in this instance, his dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, the entering of death, and, and, and as, as he'll refer to it here in a few moments from now, our being raised from the dead with Christ. So when we believed in Jesus, we died. We were, as we'll read a moment in Galatians, crucified with Christ. We died, and then he goes on to say, since then you have been raised with Christ, you didn't only die with him, you also are counted to have experienced the resurrection of Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died. See, part of why I want to talk about this today is because I want to Get really clear about what this means and what it doesn't mean. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, this is a beautiful truth that we find our identity now in Jesus Christ through the work of the gospel. But here's again my question and what I want to attempt to clarify today. If I died and I am hidden let me say it like this. If I died and I am hidden in Christ and God, does God like me or not? Or does he 
only in fact see Jesus and like Jesus? Does God like me or does he only like Jesus? If I died and I am hidden in Christ and God, see, the teaching is, and again, something I've emphasized, and it's very important and it's true, is that we are accepted by God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ, and when God decides whether or not to receive us into his presence. He sees Jesus or he sees who we are now through our faith in Jesus and he receives us. In that way, we died and our lives are hidden with Christ and God and we are accepted by God on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. But does the fact I died mean that he doesn't like me, that he doesn't want me, that he only wants Jesus, it doesn't mean that. It means that because of Jesus, we can become the best version of ourselves. We died to the version of ourselves that keeps us from God's best. And through Christ, we now have the ability to live the life that God created us to live. Ephesians tells us, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So the old self died. The old self was crucified with Christ. You've been raised a new self, but here's my point. It's still you. It's still your self. And the you who is living is now the you who is empowered by Jesus Christ, not to be someone other than you are, but to be fully yourself. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul said, I want you to notice how many personal pronouns are in this simple, uh, not simple, profound, but relatively short passage. Galatians 2, 20, the Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, the life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a whole lot there. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, but that's not period, full stop, end of the concept, because then he turns around and says, but I am still living. But I am still living now through the power of Christ who is living in me. So, when we believed in Jesus, again, we experienced the benefits of, of his crucifixion. The price for our sins was paid. Therefore, in one sense, you, the old fallen you, no longer lives. But there's another part of it. When you believed in Jesus, you also experienced the benefits of the resurrection. The living Christ now lives in you and through you. However, that doesn't mean that you aren't living. It, it just means that your old dead self was raised as a new live self and that Christ is in you helping you live a new and better life. You died, but you are still living. This means the old you with your fallen Adam's sinful nature died, but the new you through the risen Christ lives, but it's still you. Now, I'm going to try to make this practical here in a moment, but we need to take a moment to dig into this to kind of 
get this concept in a way that it can really impact us. And by the way, let me just say, I was really supposed to speak about something else today. You know, we plan what we're going to be teaching about here typically many months in advance. And I got so inspired with this concept, actually sitting in Dubai and doing some, having some extra time to study, that I decided to jettison what I was going to talk about and I'd already started working on and fly home jet lagged this week and do this whole brand new concept because it impacted me so powerfully. But to really dig into it, it takes a moment to kind of really grasp the concept, okay? So work with me for a moment, and I think you know if you've listened to me teach long enough, at some point, there more than likely will be a payoff to working hard the first few minutes to grasp the concept, okay? Everybody doing okay? Well, everybody's not, but that's okay. All right. Couple things, Galatians 2.20. What's, what's Galatians 2.20 about? I died, but I'm now living. It's not me living, but Christ living, but I'm living. It's, it sounds a little confusing. A couple of things from uh, other uh, writers and scholars about this, about that passage. Susan Eastman notes that despite being crucified with Christ, Paul certainly has a strong sense of himself as a thinking, intending, emoting, and acting self with a distinctive history and vocation. Kelly Capick writes, Paul shows us that all of God's action in creation and redemption embraces me, the real me, that is free from the distortion of sin. But the I, the ego, does still matter to the creator. Charles Spurgeon, broadly considered to be one of the greatest preachers and theologians in history, did a message on Galatians 2.20 called Christ and the Ego. Christ and the Ego. And he observed that the first person singular pronouns, I and me, are swarming everywhere in this passage, whereas the plural is absent, which is actually kind of unusual for the Apostle Paul. He typically talks in we language. He talks about who we all are together in Christ as members of one another and so on. But in this particular passage, he's focused on himself, on his self. And he does it repeatedly. And, and Spurgeon notes that, and he writes that the creator Lord does not merely love his creation as a system or some generic humanity. Rather, he loved me and gave himself for me. According to Spurgeon's reading, one distinguishing mark of the Christian religion is that rather than treating humans as cookie-cutter creatures, it brings out a person's individuality. Spurgeon clarifies that it does not make us selfish. On the contrary, it cures us of that evil, but it still does manifest in us a selfhood by which we become conscious of our personal individuality in an imminent degree. You become more aware of yourself. He then provides a helpful analogy. The science is old to us, but it was new to him. Spurgeon said all the way back in 1867, he said, In the nocturnal heavens there had long been observed bright masses of light. The, astro the astronomers called them nebulae. They supposed them to be stores of shapeless, chaotic matter until the telescope of Herschel resolved them into distinct stars. And then Spurgeon said, What the telescope did for the stars, the religion of Christ, when received into the heart, does for men. In other words, I am now able to see myself better 
And even after being crucified with Christ, I am still living. But the self I am is a better self, but I'm still my self. See, we have to understand that there's a connection between redemption and creation. Give me just a couple more minutes with this. There's a connection between redemption and creation. To be redeemed is to be restored to who you were meant to be. See, redemption has to do with buying back what was lost. To redeem a thing is to restore it back to what it was created to be. God created you. He redeemed you. And when he redeemed you, he redeemed you to be what he made you to be. He likes what he created, meaning he likes you. He doesn't want you to be a different you. He wants you to be the best version of you, which means for you to be who he created you to be. I come back I come back to this passage frequently it's power packed God saved you Paul said by his grace when you believed for we are God's masterpiece he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago remember redemption is just about getting God's project back on track and you are a big part of God's project and you being who you were made to be is a big part of God's project when he he looks at you, he says, there is my, that's my masterpiece. Well, what are you doing now, God, through Jesus Christ? <laughs> well, I'm creating people anew so they can be who they were made to be. I'm creating people, recreating people, not so they can be different people, but so they can be fully themselves. In all of their glory, because God says, I really, really, really like that person. And I really want that person to be everything I made them to be. In fact, to such an extent, I've created them anew so we could do the things I planned for them to do long ago. I mean, David, you know, almost sounds egotistical in the 139th Psalm if you read it improperly, but I think we should read it really without explanation. David said, this is David, he, he writes, you created my inmost being. He's praying, he's talking to God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. What does David say? He said, God, I, I praise you today. I praise you. Why are you praising me? God says, because God, when you made me, you did a great job. And that's what he's saying. I, how many of you have that kind of sense when you stand before God, that God looks at you and says, wow, when I made you, oh boy. Whew. I broke the mold. There's never going to be anyone like you ever again. Not anyone just like you. Because when I made you, when I developed you in your mother's womb, did I ever do a great job? What would it be like to have such 
a self-image based in what it looks like to be created in God's image. That you have the ability to say, God, you did a good job when you made me. And thank you for making... See, some of you feel uncomfortable with me even saying that because you're thinking, ego, he made your self. He made you in your particularity. He made you the person you are. Can you imagine the way this would change a 14-year-old girl's perception of herself? So many who are so challenged for whatever reason, I don't know why this comes to mind right now, that, that comes to, that so many so challenged by all the societal pressures right now. You, most of you have some sense of what I'm talking about. You see it in the polling data. You see it in so many different ways. What would it be like for, for, for every one of us, from a 14-year-old girl to a 60-year-old man, to get up every day with a proper sense of humility before God because he gets credit for it and to look into the mirror and say, you know what? I know God likes that person who's looking back at me because he made that person. And through Jesus Christ, I now can fully live as the person God really made me to be. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a song, I don't remember who, who sung it, but I heard it years ago. I remember where I was when I was here and I was jogging on Pleasant Valley Way. And I'm listening to music, and again, I don't remember who it was. And I heard this lyric that it kind of stunned me. It's so simple. But, it, but, it, but, the, but, but the singer saying, you made everything beautiful. And I think everybody here in this room, without hesitation, would say amen to that. In fact, would you say amen to, you made everything beautiful. Amen. And then the singer said, what does that make me? And I wonder if we're able to say amen to that as well. Did he somehow, when it came to you, mess up? All right. Three knowings to cultivate your likability. Really, I could have done a better job writing that. Because I'm not asking you to cultivate your likability so you become more likable by God, or even people, not today. I'm asking you to have a deeper awareness of how likable you are. Okay? Let's, let's just start. So how to cultivate your awareness of how crazy likable you are. Why are you so likable? God did a great job when he made you, and you are his masterpiece. Here's the first thing. <coughs> Pardon me. Know that God the Father likes you as much as he likes Jesus. That almost sounds her heretical. When, 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 you know, I, I had to really struggle with that for a while, but I can, this is so provable from scripture. It's, 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 it's amazing. But just think about that for a moment. God the Father likes you as much as he likes Jesus. I know that's a big statement, but he loves you so much that he sent Jesus to make you a part of his family. On one hand, we're told in Scripture that Jesus is God's one and only Son. 
The King James Version offers a little helpful clarity, I think, when it says that Jesus, the incarnate Jesus, was God's only begotten Son. This means that he was not created, but that as God, he has always been. So on one hand, he's God's one and only Son. But on the other hand, he is not God's only Son. Meaning that those of us who have been created have been made sons and daughters of God through the work of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. This really isn't an either or. Jesus obviously is a part of the Godhead and God exists in a, in a state that, that's incomprehensible to any of us. And in that sense, obviously there is a uniqueness there that's precious and, 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 and can't be touched. But, but, but on the other hand, we are clearly told in scripture that through the work of Jesus, we have been made sons and daughters of God. Hebrews chapter two, we see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that the, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Why did he taste death? He tasted death so that he could bring many sons and daughters to glory. Both the one who makes people holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, those of us who are now the sons of daughters of God through what Jesus has done, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus, through his work, brought many sons and daughters into relationship with God, and Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, our elder brother Jesus. Now, he's, it's, it's more than that, of course, and this is where you get in the complexities and really the mystery of the Godhead and how difficult it is to try to understand and explain all of this. He's our elder brother, and at the same time, he's our father, right? When we're told later in the passage again, he says, here am I, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So we're both his children and his brothers and sisters. But the fact is we are his brothers and sisters, and we have been made heirs together with Christ of everything God has. We have become sons and daughters of God because he found pleasure in us and wanted us and chose to adopt us. Ephesians chapter 1, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Listen to this tag-on sentence here. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Why? Have we become sons and daughters of God? It's because he loved us, he chose us to adopt us, and he did this because he wanted to and because it brings him great pleasure. Adoption in the first century, in the context in which this is written, it was of a different sort, not entirely, but mostly than the way we would think about adoption today. In Roman society, and Ephesus was a, a Roman colony, in Roman society, adoption would, would typically happen between adults or, or at least um, uh, uh, someone older. 
And uh, it would happen because someone perhaps would not have had children and they wanted to bring someone in their family, typically as a son, but sometimes as a daughter, who would inherit everything that they had. They would become the heir of the person through adoption. An example of this that you'd be familiar with would be Julius Caesar adopting his, uh, his nephew uh, Octavian, who later became the uh, emperor Augustus. Or Augustus, Octavian, uh, adopting his uh, nephew, uh, I'm sorry, I think it was actually his uh, uh, stepson, uh, uh, Tiberius, who later became an emperor as well. These were, uh, this was someone looking for someone worthy of being their heir. In other words, they would go try to find someone that they could imagine inheriting everything that they had. Now, there also were some occasions of parentless children being, or orphan children being adopted by typically someone else in the family, but adoption was mostly thought about in the way that I've just described it from what I've studied and understand. Someone finds someone and says, you know, that person has the quality that I like, and I want that person now to be my son or my daughter so that I can give them everything I have. See, when we think about being adopted by God, he looked at you and he says, you know what? I like you. I choose to adopt you. I'm going to do this because bringing you into my family gives me great pleasure. And furthermore, I want you to have access to everything I am and everything I have. I'm going to make you an heir. Galatians 4 says it beautifully. When the time set had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, sometimes women, understandably, are a little off-put by the idea that Scripture at times will call you a son. But there's something radically important happening here that had never happened before in history, and that is the theology of the New Testament says that God decided that whether you're a man or a woman, you could be called a son of God because at that time in history, this is no longer true and shouldn't be true any longer, but at that time in history, it was it was only a son who had the, the, the rights of inheritance, and typically it wasn't just a son, it was the firstborn son. Through Jesus, we're told in the New Testament, all of us, men, women, second born, fifth born, 20th born, orphan, it doesn't matter. All of us are adopted into the family and receive the rights of the firstborn son. So having said that, when the time set had fully come, God sent a son born of a woman that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir, which is to say that through the work of Jesus Christ, God the Father, loves us in the same way he loves Jesus because we are his sons and daughters, joint heirs with Christ of everything God the Father has. We may think sometimes that the only reason we're invited to God's party is because we have a cool elder brother. And we do have a cool elder brother. Jesus Christ. But God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit invites us into community with himself and all that he's doing because he wants us. 
He doesn't just say, when I look at you, I see Jesus. He says, when I look at you because of Jesus, I now can do what brings me pleasure. And what brings me pleasure is to adopt you into my family and to offer to you everything I am and have. Here's the second knowing. The second knowing. God wants you to be you because he likes you. God wants you to be you because he likes you. I know I've already said it, but let me dig into it just a little bit more. Everybody doing okay? Can you, can you survive another six or seven minutes? Yes. <clears throat> Still okay. God wants you to be you because he likes you. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about an ancient personality profile called the Enneagram. And I specifically referred to my experience with the book, The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective by Richard Rohr and Andreas Ebert. I talked about how every personality type has tremendous strengths, but also a unique shadow side. And evidently, a lot of people were impacted by that, by the follow-up comments and questions and emails and what, what was the name of that book and all that I got later. Every personality has tremendous strengths. It also has a shadow side. In fact, the strength of one's particular personality or the brightness with which one's personality shines, as it were, creates a corresponding shadow. And I talked about how we need to know enough about ourselves to see the strength of our personality and how much we also need to acknowledge the shadow side. When we were crucified with Christ, our shadow side was crucified, and it needs to continue to be put to death every day, okay? But this truth does not negate the power and potential of our unique personalities. God made you. He gave you your personality, and he likes you. He likes your personality. Now, you may sometimes not like your own personality. I think that's probably normal for most of us. Sometimes there are things about our personality that if we could change, we could change, but you know there's some level of immutability to our basic personality. All the personality tests show that, that when it comes to the core essence of our personality, it doesn't change all that much over time. Now, I don't want to get too far into that. I'm, that's not an area of expertise with mine, but that's my, my understanding. You may sometimes not like your own personality, but God likes your personality. Why does God like your personality? He gave you your personality. You may have people around you who don't like your personality. You know what? That's their problem. Seriously. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You. You are God's masterpiece. So how do you think God, who made you and gave you your personality, feels when you're dissing on your own personality? Or when people around you are trying to diminish you because if they don't like your personality, they just need to make the choice not to hang around with you, but don't hang around with people who are attacking the basic essence of who you are, okay? Because it's offensive to God. To become more like Jesus doesn't mean that we become less like ourselves. It means that we become the best version of ourselves. Your basic personality does not change, but... It does mean as you become more like Jesus. So in other words, are we a bunch of Jesuses running around? 
Well, that's a whole other subject in terms of some people would say that he, some studied people would say that he was kind of the composite of the best of all of our personalities, and that case actually could be made, but I digress. The fact is, what he wants is he wants you to be you. When we become more like Jesus, it doesn't mean that our basic personality changes, but we develop our character to be more like Jesus. Our attitude is developed to be more like Jesus. Our ethics and behaviors are changed to be become more like the ethics and behaviors that are taught in, 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 in Scripture and in the moral theme through Scripture and particularly take the teachings of Jesus Christ. It does mean that the fruit of the Spirit will be manifest, but it will be manifest through your unique personality. Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So, you may be a one on the Enneagram, which is a person with strong drive, a strong drive towards perfecting things in the world around them. But the shadow side of that personality type is anger. So when everything isn't working the way you think it should be, if you're a one, you default to anger. Through Jesus, through the work of the Spirit in you, you, though, will become a redeemed one, meaning that you will pursue justice with great drive, but not anger. You will continue to be who you are, but become the best version of who you are, which is to say, when he redeems you, it doesn't mean that he changes your personality. It means that now the character of Christ is being formed in you in a way where you are who you are, but the best version of yourself you possibly can be. The Myers-Briggs may reveal you to be an ENTJ. The DISC profile may reveal that your personality is more high I, inspirational, than given to detail, D. The strength finder may reveal that you are an achiever. Embrace who you are. No one personality is better than any other personality. God made you. He likes you. But regardless your personality because of Jesus and because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, you're going to be a more loving, joyful, peaceful, forbearing, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled version of whoever God made you to be. But you are still going to be you. But now Jesus now is living in you and through you in a way where your personality is impacting the world around you in the most positive way one can possibly imagine. And here's the third thing. Know that you can have the faith of Christ. Know that you can have the faith of Christ. I actually heard Dallas Willard say that to be more like Jesus, we must cultivate the faith of Christ. I may do a series of sermons on this sometime in the future. I'm so fascinated by this, the faith of Christ, as opposed to the faith in Christ. Now, obviously, we need faith in Christ, but, but understand there's a dimension of life. It's the faith of Christ. Example. Remember the story, the disciples are out on a boat with Jesus and a great storm comes and the disciples are freaking out and anxious and worried and concerned. Finally, they wake him up and wake him up and they say, hey, we know that you can stop this if you want to. They had faith in Christ, right? They knew that he was who he said he was as much as they could understand at that time and that he could do things no one else could. They had faith in Christ. Jesus, on the other hand, while the storm was raging, is asleep in the boat, chilled out, full of rest. Why? Because he knows. He knows who he is. 
He knows who he is in relationship with the Father. He knows his time isn't yet. He's not, he doesn't a little turbulence on the airplane saying, oh, God, I'm going to die now. He knew it wasn't his time. He's, he's cool, right? That's the faith of Christ. Do you, do you see the... It's one thing to believe in Jesus. It's another thing to believe like Jesus. And you have to imagine the deep sense of assurance that would come when you have the faith of Christ. One way this is manifest, and I'll close with this, is when Jesus prayed for his followers in the Garden of Gethsemane. And part of what he prayed is this. He said, I pray for those who will believe in me through the message of the disciples. That's us that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know, this is Jesus, the man Jesus praying to his Father, they will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What did Jesus pray? He said, I pray for the people who believe my disciples' message. People sitting it's 747 Northfield Avenue in the year 2023 in West Orange, New Jersey. Those people. I pray that those people will know that you love them even as you love me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Guys, when at his baptism... God the Father spoke out of the heavens about his son Jesus and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus believed that. You understand, I don't think he ever didn't believe that. He knew that. He was deeply assured. The Father looks at me and says, you are my beloved son. The Father looks at me and says, in you I am well pleased. See, we need to have the faith of Christ that says, I believe that. I believe the Father loves me just as much as he loves his son, Jesus. And we need to get that assurance so deep in our hearts that we're no longer anxious and nervous and worried and bothered and disturbed and wondering if we have peace with God, but we need to know even amidst all the stuff of life, God the Father looks at you and says, there's my daughter. I like her so much. I like her so much. She gives me such joy. But Lord, I kind of did something stupid the other day. I know we need to take care of that. It's not right. I'm going to talk to you about that, you, but, but I'm crazy about you. I am absolutely crazy about you. Can you believe? So here's, if, if I can offer you an assignment this week, it's up to you whether you accept the assignment or not. It's not school, I know. But here's the assignment I would offer you. That every day this week, at some point, you look in the mirror, just make sure no one else is around, they're going to think you're crazy. But you look, look in the mirror and you say, God really likes that person. And I like that person too. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and God likes me. Would you stand with me, please?